been studying the book of Revelation for a long time now, and uh, things kind of look like we'll be studying it for even a, a longer time. But Frank mentioned a few minutes ago about Y2K and all of the, the oomph that's going on as people are saying, you know, something is up somewhere. We've talked in here about how in advertising it's just so apparent that the culture, at least those that uh, have something to do with putting things in front of our face, somebody somewhere knows that something is up and the Y2K thing has kind of brought that, I mean, believers that are not in this church, but man, every time I hear from somebody that is uh, a believer somewhere else, and man, they're just so sure that Y2K means that Jesus is going to be returning, and for those of you who may be newer to the Bible and don't know uh, some of the terminology, uh, you've probably heard the word rapture used somewhere along the way. That is the event that is going to take place in the very near future from everything that we, we see in the Word of God. It's that event when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, a trumpet is going to sound, and the Bible says in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, every person who has entered into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ is going to be immediately removed off of this planet. They will vanish in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And again, we believe that's very soon. We're not all hyped up in this church about Y2K and that this means Jesus is going to come back. But you know what? I, I, I love the, the urgency that it's putting out there in, in the culture. I, I think that's good. Maybe some folks might, might listen to, to what the Bible says. Did you guys see this week uh, the, the article in the paper that talked about the, uh, the, the sun, you know, uh, during the... Uh, Christmas and, and New Year's week. Uh, that's when the sun is in its winter solstice. Uh, and most of you know that December 25th was not really the birth of Jesus Christ. It was really the birthday of Baal, the sun god. And the world is going through some, some wild things as far as the sun is concerned during that period of time. Article this week, how many of you saw it in the paper? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? He was talking about that during that week, in fact, July or hmm, January 1st, that the, the sun is going to be doing some major things and it's going to have a major effect with the communications, the satellites, and all that kind of thing. I love it, man. Bring it on, man. I, I, I just hope that the whole world gets all up in arms so that they might listen again to what the book has to say. Uh, any young people get, get this? Uh, okay, some of you. This is... This is East Bay, is what it's called. And what it is, is it's, uh, it's a, a book that has all kinds of sports equipment and, you know, shoes and all of that kind of deal. Check this out. We got this uh, in our house this week. First page, you open up to it, and it's got a picture of Terrell Davis. He's a running back uh, for you ladies. <laughs> a few years ago, his name probably would have been Terrell, but that's too easy. It's got to be... Terrell, you know what I'm saying? Okay, but, but it says above the picture, the end is near. Bring on the apocalypse. Now, for those of you that don't know what the apocalypse is, if you took a dictionary and you look up the word apocalypse, it says, Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Check it out. I mean, in this little publication, they're saying, the end is near, y'all. 
So bring on the apocalypse. And so what Nike has done now is they've got the Nike Air Zoom Apocalypse. That's the name of the shoe. Now, these are the shoes you need to wear. If you miss the rapture, y'all, wear these shoes and you'll be, you'll be dodging those 100-pound hailstones as they come out of the sky. I mean, you know, it, it really, it's incredible to me, the, uh, the attitude that says, bring it on, God, we got whatever, we, we can handle whatever you can dish out. Oh, they don't know what God's going to dish out during that period of time. And that's the only reason you could, you could make a, a statement like that. That's, that's certainly not the message this morning. But we are in a, a, a section in the book of Revelation that is dealing with the apocalypse, that's dealing with the last days, in fact, that time of tribulation that's going to be taking place uh, shortly after the, the rapture does take place, where the believers are removed. We're in chapter 14, and we've been looking at the first five verses of this chapter, and what we found is that these first five verses in Revelation chapter 14 are all about a very special group of believers during the tribulation period, a group that is referred to as the 144,000. And now listen, one of, the, one of the key things, one of the key questions that you want to nail down about this group is that if this is in fact a, a group of 144,000 believers in the tribulation period, but all of the believers in Jesus Christ were removed at the rapture of the, the church, the obvious question then is, where are these 144,000 going to come from? How will they come to faith in Christ? You, you got it? I mean, if all the believers are removed, then how do they become believers? And what we've seen is that Paul makes a, a very, very significant statement about his own conversion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8. He says this, that he was one, listen to it, he was one born out of due time. You see, if you begin to, to, to look at the, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was not converted to Christ the same way that you and I were. You see, for us, what happened is, is somehow... In, in God's sovereign plan and design, somehow this book, the book that we're holding in our hand, this book was introduced to us, and some follower of Jesus Christ shared with us the message of this book, the message of the gospel, and what took place is the Holy Spirit then took the message that they were articulating to us, and the Spirit of God began to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and as a result of that, we called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we were born again. But with the Apostle Paul, here is a guy that believed that Christians were of the devil, and he's going to Damascus, and at that very time, he's on his way to go persecute and kill believers in Jesus Christ, when all of a sudden, bam, the Lord Jesus Christ personally appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul is knocked to his, his knees, and he calls upon the name of the Lord and is saved. He was one, listen to it, that was born out of due time. You see, the Apostle Paul came to Christ the same way that the 144,000 are going to come to Christ once the believers in Jesus Christ have been removed.
You see, in the tribulation period, all of the people who could have communicated the message of the gospel to people, all of those people have been removed, but Jesus is still going to get his message, and in fact, what he is going to do is just like in the case of the Apostle Paul, he is going to personally deliver his message to the 144,000 during the tribulation period. He's going to do that with 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they will be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we saw all of that when we were back in, in chapter 7. And what Revelation chapter 7 says is that this, this conversion of the 144,000 is going to take place on this planet before the winds of God's judgment begin to, to blow in the tribulation period, and that once they call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be sealed as God's special servants during the tribulation period. And we've seen that that seal, first of all, is going to mark them as God's personal property. You can see here in chapter 14 in verse 1, that the seal that they receive is the name of the Father written on their foreheads, the name Jehovah. And God says, once these people have come to Christ, God seals them with that seal. He marks them as his personal property and says, these are mine. We saw also that that seal in Revelation chapter 9 is going to guarantee them of God's personal protection during the, the incredible judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth during the tribulation period. Listen, every single person on this entire planet is going to be affected by the things that the book of Revelation says from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19. Incredible things that are going to be taking place on this earth, and every person will be affected by that except for this group of sealed believers. That seal guarantees them God's personal protection. And then we saw also that this seal is, is going to mark them as those that will fulfill God's personal purpose. God's personal purpose. You see, God has always wanted to use a group of people who would obey him to carry his message to all the world, to every nation, to every kindred, to every people, and to every tongue. And listen, this group, the group of 144,000, according to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3, these sealed servants of God's are going to be the ones who will fulfill God's personal purpose. And during the tribulation period, they will be his sealed witnesses to carry his message to every nation and every kindred and every people and every tongue, and if you're in chapter 7, you can look at verse 9. What it says is that there are going to be those from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue who will have responded to their witness. All right, now John, when he, when he saw the 144,000 in chapter 7, it was during the tribulation period while the 144,000 were on the earth. Now when John sees them in chapter 14, it's at the end of the tribulation period, the 144,000 have already been caught up or, or raptured uh, at the end of the tribulation period, and they're now in heaven. They're now in the heavenly Zion. And as we came to chapter 14, and in chapter 14, what John does here, you know, we were introduced to him back in chapter 7, but when we come to chapter 14, John begins to go into more detail about this incredible group of believers and what makes them so incredible is once we get in eternity and we look back over our shoulder, guys, there's only going to be one group of people that 
ever did the job right. And it ain't us, and it ain't the nation of Israel. It is the 144,000. And because this is a group of people that does it right, rather than just cruise through the verses and teach all of the ins and outs of the things doctrinally, what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've kicked way, way back. And what we've been trying to do, because the example of this group of people is, is so rich and and because this is, they carry out what it is that God's called us to do in this dispensation, what we've been doing is trying to look at, at the example that they set for us and, and those of us that are living in the last days, those that the Bible would refer to as the Laodiceans. We've been trying to learn some lessons that we can apply to our lives and begin to apply in this church from this incredible group of people. And the first thing that we've seen that we need to learn from is the fact that with this group there is visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and His Father. There's visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and His Father. And we saw that, first of all, through the seal that these 144,000 servants of our God received during the tribulation period. I mean, you can't miss it. This group of people is marked smack dab right in the middle of their forehead with the Lamb's Father's name, the name of Jehovah right there. And listen, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter where they are during the tribulation period, anybody who looks at this group of people, they are going to see visible evidence that they are identified with the Father because it's going to be written right in the middle of their forehead. And from their example... We began to compare Scripture with Scripture, and what we found is that during the dispensation that we're presently living in, during the church age, what the Bible says is that there is also visible evidence in the lives of all of God's servants right now in this dispensation of our identification with the Lamb and with His Father, and that evidence is made visible through the seal of the living God which we've received. Not written in our foreheads, but according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, what, what it says is that this is the seal of the Holy Spirit, which 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 says results not with God writing anything with ink on our forehead or anywhere else, but what it says is that there is nonetheless something that is going to be written on us. God is going to write and we're going to become living epistles and that seal is going to be made known to every person because God writes it in our hearts. And because of him writing his, his name in our hearts, there is a change of life. And Paul goes on in the book of 2 Timothy to say that just like the Lord is going to be able to identify the 144,000 during the tribulation period, what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 is that in this dispensation, he recognizes all of his true servants of God in this age, he recognizes them by our seal. And that seal is made visible to anybody who looks on and that the, all of us that name his name show forth in our lives a continuous lifelong process of departing from iniquity. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 says. The foundation of God standeth sure having this seal. And the seal is that all of those that name the name of Christ are those that show forth in their life a continuous lifelong process of departing from, our, from iniquity. Our identification with the Lamb 
and his father is made visible because it's written all over our lives. Again, not on our forehead with ink. It's written on our lives. And you see, that, that it didn't come about because we, we decided one day that we were going to turn over a new leaf. It, that came about because we called upon the name of the Lord and we were placed into Christ and Christ was placed into us and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit and because we were it changed our hearts and because our hearts changed the natural flow of that the natural expression of that is going to be that our lives are going to be changed so our sealing causes us and our faith to be made visible to every person who, who would look on we are identified with the lamb and his father and, and the, the simple point in all of this is folks that if in your life there is no visible evidence, then it's an indication that there's been no sealing of the Spirit of God. And if there is no sealing of the Spirit of God, according to Romans chapter 8, then you're not his child. And you didn't fall out of him. You never were in him. But the sealing is for every person who is in the Lord Jesus Christ and where there is no evidence of that sealing it is evidence that there's no salvation regardless of what anyone professes regardless of what anyone thinks but not only is the visible evidence of the 144,000 identification with the lamb and his father seen through their seal it's also seen through their submission the submission of the 144,000 servants of our God and you should be here in Revelation chapter 14 and would you look at the middle of Verse 4 again, the, the, the middle of verse 4 makes a beautiful statement about the, the 144,000. It says, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And the point is, there's never any question about the 144,000's identification with the Lamb because you can't look at the Lamb when we're in heaven without seeing the 144,000 because no matter where the Lamb goes, no matter what the Lamb does, the 144,000 follow Him whithersoever He goeth. And again, the point is, there's visible evidence that they're identified with Him. They will not let Him out of their sight. Wherever He is, that's where they'll be. And, and we, we began talking about what an incredible example this group of believers sets for us because the fact is if you really are a true servant or child of God in this dispensation listen your identification with him is going to be made visibly evident because of your submission to him because you follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. And what I've been trying to get you to see is, is that our Lord's invitation to us wasn't just an invitation to go to heaven when we die. His invitation to us was to follow me. And you see, listen, it had to be. That had to be his invitation to us because of what the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. What it says is that all we, all of us, all we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned 
everyone, the Bible says, to our own way. We followed our desires. We followed our lust. We followed our passions. We followed our wills, our plans. We followed, Isaiah 53, 6, every one of us, we followed our own way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says that not only did we follow our own way, it says that every single one of us, again, every one of us, we followed Satan as he led us through the course of this world. That was the way that every single one of us were going. And one day, through the pages of this book, we were confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now listen, his invitation to us, when we were confronted with the Christ of the Bible, his invitation wasn't, hey, listen, how'd you like to continue walking your own way, fulfilling the desires of your flesh and your mind, and how'd you like to, well, just continue following Satan as he leads you through the course of this world that's opposed to everything that I am, how would you like to just keep following the same old path through this, this life, but go to heaven when you die? How does that sound? Now listen, to do that, all you got to do is just say the magical little words of this prayer, and what that will do is that will obligate me to you, even though you really don't want any obligation to me. Now folks, I, I like it, fat chance. That is not, that is not what I read in, in this book. Now, now listen, if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks as we've been talking about this, make sure that because I've made that statement, make sure that you don't think that, that I think that salvation has whatsoever anything to do with anything that we might do or you or me adding anything to what Jesus Christ did through his death, burial, and resurrection because I'm not saying that not in any way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm just saying to you that if you look at what this book says about salvation and how it comes to a person, you'd never see that God's interest was simply trying to find a way to get people to say the words of a prayer so he could cart them off to heaven one day. I, 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 I challenge you to show me that anywhere in that book. Now, now this, is, this, is, this is very, very important. Uh, some of you don't, I, I don't know for sure if you understand how important the things I'm, 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 I'm talking about are right now. now and, and maybe the reason that some of you don't understand how important this is, is because you've been around here so long. And, and for the, the last 10 years around here, we've been, we've been teaching these kind of things about what genuine salvation r really is. And, and because we've been talking about that, some of you don't understand what, what is going on in, in other arenas of, of Christianity uh, amongst what we would refer to as fundamental Bible-believing churches. What fundamental Bible-believing churches would have to say about what I've just communicated to you is that what I just told you is false doctrine. Now, uh, again, because you've been here for 10 years and, and we've been teaching these things, some of you have listened to everything I've said thus far, and it's like, I, yeah, I've been hearing that for all these years, and, and, and you don't understand that the people really do believe that that teaching 
is false doctrine. And I think, I think it's important that you understand that people think that about, some people think that about what we believe. Now, you know, we're sitting here in New Philadelphia, Ohio. I mean, I didn't know that New Philadelphia, Ohio existed 16 years ago. I'd never heard of that. I mean, we're rural America. But because of what has happened in this church, because of discipleship, we got a lot of churches that uh, know about what's, what's going on here, and churches have been in, influenced, infected, if you will, uh, through the ministry of discipleship. We've taken teams to other churches and other, other churches, other pastors in the, those networks of, the, of those churches. They want to know about this, this, this thing and you know, this group that came in and, and, and taught this stuff. And so one of the questions that we're facing, in fact, that there's two things that, that people kind of freak out about, about us, two things that they want to, they want to talk to us about before, you know, they allow us to mess them up. One of the things, and do realize that I'm talking about fundamental Bible-believing Christians. The first thing that they want to nail down is our stand on the Bible. You see, we do take a very, very weird view as far as fundamentalism is concerned when it comes to the Bible. The weird view is that we believe that the book that we hold in our hand is the Word of God. Now, you know, that's a wild concept, isn't it? You know? And the thing that just freaks me out about this, and I don't want to become, you know, a jerk this morning as we talk about this, because I can get a little bit impassioned by some of this. The thing that impassions me is the fact that all over the world, fundamental Bible-believing people hold a Bible in their hand as they begin to talk about that we believe the Bible is the infallible, inspired, inherent Word of God. And all the people in the churches are saying, in the colleges and seminaries are saying, Amen! But if you walked up to the guy after the service and you asked him, Now, did you mean that about the one that you were waving around in the air when you said that? Well, uh, no. Uh, actually, this is a reliable translation. And, and this contains the words of God, but these are not, in fact, the words of God. And so, you know, we've got to qualify our position in the fact that we believe that the God that inspired the Word of God was also big enough to preserve it. I mean, you know what? If he can inspire it from nothing, once it was on a page, I do think he's got the ability to preserve it, just like he promised us in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. And I don't want to preach to the choir on this thing this morning. I think we, I think we all believe this stuff, Okay. But, but you need to understand that as we're taking discipleship to other churches, this, of all things, is, is one of the key things that we've got to explain our position on, that we believe the Bible. The other thing is the stance we take on what salvation is. Now, now you can see that these are just minor little issues. What is the Word of God and, and what is salvation? You know, I mean, it doesn't get any more fundamental, it doesn't get any more basic than the thing, I mean, I don't, can't think of anything other than the deity of Christ, that, or the bodily resurrection of Christ, that would, would be more significant than, than those things. And I think we need to talk about this for just a second. Because I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, what it says is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. 
I mean, listen, you could teach that to a kindergartner. This is not tough stuff. I mean, they're all one-syllable words other than Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't get any more basic, doesn't get any more fundamental than that. But the question is, how do you spell belief? I mean, when it comes down to, to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it mean? What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me just say this from the get-go, and, and this is on your sheet. But make sure that you get this down before we move into this territory. Adding any other condition to salvation than believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is a false gospel and nullifies the finished work of Christ. Adding any other condition to salvation than believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is a false gospel and nullifies the finished work of Christ. In other words, if I add anything to belief, if I add belief plus baptism, it is not a true gospel. If I add belief plus keeping the seven sacraments, it is not the gospel of the Bible. If I add belief plus human works that I bring to the table, then what we're really saying is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ really didn't have the power to redeem us. It started a nice little work, and we got to bring something to the table. And we detest that. I, I believe that that is a false gospel. Acts 16.31 means what it says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It means what it says. What it says is that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And we believe that. But as you read the New Testament, what becomes abundantly apparent is that believing biblically isn't uh, or it is most definitely something other than mental or intellectual assent and it's something more and beyond religious emotionalism and, and now listen it's got to be more than that uh oh i think he's adding uh, he's adding something to salvation he just said it, it, it's more than it's more than intellectual assent. It's more than emotionalism. Yes, it is more than that. And, and listen, it's got to be. The reason it's got to be is because the Bible says in James chapter 2 and verse 19, the devils believe and tremble. They believe every single thing about Jesus Christ that a person needs to believe. They believe that he's God. They believe that he was God in human flesh. They believe that he lived a sinless life. They believe that he died on the cross for sinners. They believe that he rose again the third day. They believe every single thing. Theologically, their, their, their theology is impeccable. You couldn't find anything wrong with any demon anywhere in the world. You couldn't find anything wrong with anything that they believe about Christ, who he is, or what he did. And when... When they, when they think about who he is and what he did, they tremble. They are, emotionally, they are 
they're hit by, by that. So you see, when we talk about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then it does merit a definition, doesn't it? Because would anybody here say that any demon is saved because they believe the right stuff and because they, they tremble about it? 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 says, Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. And if it was just a matter of believing the right truth about Christ, then it wouldn't tell you to, to examine yourself. There's got to be some criteria that the Bible uses to determine whether or not we're in the faith. There's got to be some criteria that determines what true belief in Christ is. And we've talked about the fact that the book of 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life, but you better go to the book of 1 John, these things that are written, to find out how you once you have believed and you've got all of the right doctrine down, you better go there and determine whether or not what you got is true saving faith that you can know that you have embraced a true Christ. So you see, I, I mean, if it was just as simple as just believing the right stuff, then the book of 1 John would say, now I've written to this to all you that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you can know. It's not what it says. It says, these things have I written. The whole book of 1 John is written so that you can know whether or not you had true saving faith. To know whether you really are a child of God. But Romans chapter 10 verse 9, we, we, just, we just quoted it. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Four verses later, it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you come to the Gospel of Matthew, and it says in Matthew chapter 7, you need to correct the reference on your sheet, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, and what it says is, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, I thought you just said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I, I did. God did. But not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. You say, well, I, I, I don't get it, okay? Well, let me just take a, 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 another second here to try to explain this, this to you, okay? But I think it's apparent to all of us because of those verses, you've got to define what belief on the Lord Jesus Christ really is. And I'm going to give you this statement, and then I'm going to take you to the Word of God to, to prove it. But I, I want to show you biblically that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is really nothing more than the surrendering of your will to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the surrendering of your will to the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember we just talked about the demons? They believe intellectually. They've made that ascent. Emotionally, oh, they're hit by it. And you see, we've all been made up of, of a mind and emotions and something else. What is it? Our will. And you see, though the demons all believe intellectually and all are hit emotionally, one thing they'll never do is they'll never submit their will to Jesus Christ. And what sets apart saved people from unsaved people is belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief, true belief, 
which is the surrendering of your will. And you see, this is where many, with many people, this is where the, the problem comes in. Because you see, what, what a lot of people want to do when they hear that statement is they equate the surrendering of your will as a human work. Or they equate it as a condition that you're putting on salvation other than just simple belief. And I'm just simply saying that belief on the Lord Jesus Christ is the biblical equivalent of surrendering your will to him. It's got to be something more. I mean, the verses are telling us it's got to be something more than a mental or intellectual assent. So what does it really mean? And I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Now understand this. The, the, the book of Romans tells us that our sin had so absolutely devastated us spiritually that there's never been any person who on their own has ever understood what God was really wanting of man. And because man never really understood what God was wanting, there was no man and there has never been any man who has ever sought God. Now, do you understand that? Look at it here in chapter 3 and verse 11. It says very specifically, there is, count them, none that understandeth. How many understand, class? None. There is none that seeketh after God. How many? None. Now get this. In our lost spiritual condition, understanding and seeking God was an impossibility. And since that's true, you know what God had to do? God had to seek us. And in the seeking of us, help us to understand what we needed to understand. Now the big question is, what is it that we needed to understand, right? None understand, none seek after me. Okay, well, what do we need to understand so we can seek? You know what we need to understand? That there is absolutely no way possible for us to come to him apart from his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 14 and verse 6. Now, we've talked about this, but, but I, I want to make sure that you understand this. John 14, verse 6 says, I, Jesus speaking, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But now, now listen, in our lost condition, even though we're reading that in black and white, we couldn't understand that you see we can read that and people all over the world read that and go to churches where they quote that 
and, and they read it, but they don't understand it. And they, they read it, and they think that coming to the Father has something to, to do with something we do, or it has to do with some religion, or, or living a good life, or, or trying to keep the Ten Commandments. But the fact is, what Jesus says here, you can't come to the Father except through the Son. Now, that's real basic, right? Okay, I want you to look back at what Jesus said in, in chapter 6, though. John chapter 6, in verse 44. Now Jesus says, no man can come to, not the Father, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. You know what that is according to Romans chapter 3 and verse 11? That's God seeking us. Okay, so now, now get it. Now, this is so simple. It is incredibly profound. It's so profound that you, you can miss it real easy. Okay? Now get this. John 14, 6. You can't come to the Father except through Jesus. John 6, 44. You can't come to Jesus except the Father draws you to him. And how is it that he draws you to him? How is it that he seeks you? You know how he does that? By showing you your need of him. I can't come to the Father except through Jesus. But I can't come to Jesus except the Father draw me. And part of the drawing is showing me my need of Christ. And you know how he shows us our need of Christ? It's in John chapter 16. John 16 and, and verse 18. You know how he shows us our need, folks? It's by reproving you or convincing you or convicting you by the, the Holy Spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment. And, and listen, by the time he's done that, you understand who he is. You understand that he is absolutely, what it says right there, he's righteous. And you understand who you are. You understand. By the time that the Holy Spirit of God is, is convincing you of this, you understand that you're absolutely sinful, and, and you understand that you are incapable of escaping His judgment unless you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father through the conviction of the Spirit of God brings you to a point of decision. Will I continue to follow my own way and the way of Satan to the course of this world, or will I turn to follow Christ? You see, that's where he brings us. Did we get there ourselves? No, we couldn't understand that. We, we couldn't do it. We weren't seeking God, and so God began to go to work in us. But now listen, folks. That... That turning, recognizing what way we're on, we finally understand and we're convicted of our sin and his incredible righteousness and understanding that judgment. And we're faced with this decision. Am I going to keep going that way? That's the way I'm turned. That's the way I'm going. His way is this way. Turning 
after he has done that work, is not works for salvation. It's nothing more than the response that God was looking for in seeking you and drawing you and causing you to understand by the conviction of his spirit. You see, that's what believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. It's believing who he is. And it's believing who you are. And it's believing the judgment that's going to come. And you couldn't understand that by yourself. And you're brought to that point of decision. And you come to a place in your life to where you say, that way leads to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. And this way is a whole lot more narrow. But this is the way that leads to life. And that's the way that I want to go. Now, is that putting a condition on salvation? I, I, I mean, I, I can't see it. I mean, this just this seems so basic to me. But, but I, I felt like we needed to go through all of this this morning because I'm, I'm afraid that maybe some of you don't even really understand the issue and how the people think that what we're talking about is works for salvation when nothing could be further from the truth. All that we're talking about is simply the surrender of your will to God's working in your life and God's invitation to you. I mean, he brought you to this place so that you could understand because you couldn't understand. He brought you to this place so that you could turn to seek him because you couldn't seek him apart from him doing that work. And all we're talking about is simply responding to the work of God. So you got it? We're so bankrupt spiritually, we don't seek God. God says that we're so clueless, none of us can even understand our need, much less seek the one who can meet the need. And so God, God starts drawing. And he begins working in our lives to open our eyes. And by his spirit, he begins not only to, to enlighten us to his truth, but he begins to take his truth and he convicts us about that truth and he shows us our sin he shows us his righteousness he shows us the inevitable consequences if we continue in our own sinful decision or, or condition and we're brought to a point of decision us to the lord jesus christ and we're left to decide will i continue will i can continue to follow my own way or will i turn to follow him to follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth and that turning it's, it's, it's the term that is found in the Bible for that is, is repentance. And you know what's such a blessing about God when it comes to this thing? According to, to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but how many? But all should come to what? Repentance. That's what God wants for every single person. In, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, what it says is, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to, you know, all men. And I believe that grace that he's talking about there that appears to all men is God's grace of drawing us to himself and God's grace of reproving us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. God wants every single person to come to him. The, the, the fact that he, he, he's calling us to follow him means that we were going our own way in a way that was going to lead us to destruction. And his invitation was, are you going to keep going that way or are you going to follow me? 
And this morning, uh, I felt that as a church, we need we need to cover that information because the the last thing that we ever want to do in this place is start adding anything to the Bible. And to be quite honest with you, we we do get blamed for adding things to the Bible because of the position that I just explained to you. And I've tried to take the issue and, you know, just just concise it so that we'd all understand and so that if anywhere along the way somebody might begin to question what we believe about what genuine salvation is so that you might be able to, because you don't know that the issue is going on out there. I'm telling you the issue is going on out there. The issue about what is the Bible and the issue about what is salvation, and we're talking about an issue that is going on in the name of fundamentalism. And it's just absolutely bizarre when you really begin to understand what the book has to say. These are not simple, uh, or these are not difficult concepts that we've, we've talked about today, but people are stumbling all over the, these things. And, and we began last week talking about what it really means to, to follow the Lamb. L listen to what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And, and the point that Jesus makes is that in this age, if you're a true child of God, you will follow him. If you're a sheep, you'll follow. And if you're not following, it means you're not a, you're not a sheep. And, and so we began talking about the fact that it's not enough for us to say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We've got to determine what criteria we're going to base that on. You see, I can think some things in my mind that it means about following Christ. But does that mean I'm a follower of Christ because I think this is what it means? If I go to a church that says, this is what it means to follow Christ, hop in this box and do these things and don't do these things, and you'll be a follower of Christ, does that mean I'm a follower of Christ? No, I'm a follower of Christ because the Bible tells me what a follower of Christ does. And so we began last week looking at the, the presuppositions of, of following. And we, we talked about the fact that the, the, the very fact that Jesus is inviting us to follow him presumes some things. First of all, following presumes change. It, we come to a, a, a place to where Jesus is saying, okay, you've been going your way and you've been doing your thing, going through the course of this world, and now I'm inviting you to follow me. And what we began to see is that if you're going to follow him, you can't stay where you are and follow at the same time. And if you're going to follow him, it means you've got to change what's been going on in your life. You've got to change the way that you think. You've got to change the way that you feel. You've got to change the priorities that you set. You, there's, there's just changes that come. You change your lifestyle. You change your plans because you're following the Lamb. You're not trying to earn your salvation. You're simply following him, and that's characteristic of anybody who is a sheep, anybody who truly knows the Lord as their Savior. Now, now, now listen. 
anytime that you bring this, this subject up, what, what starts happening is people sit in rooms like this and go, oh my goodness, you know, when I got saved, all I knew is that I was a sinner and I was going to hell, and so I called upon the name of the Lord, and I didn't know anything about that, that following. You know what? I didn't either. I didn't. I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I was going to hell, and I didn't want to go there, and I called upon the name of the Lord. And the fruit of that, because I became a sheep, is I began following him. And you didn't even have to know all of that. You didn't, you, no, there's no condition for salvation. It's not like, you gotta, if you didn't know that before you got saved, and you ain't saved this morning. No. You didn't have to know all of that. But, if you got saved with, in that event, whenever it was when you called upon the name of the Lord, you ought to be able to look at your life and see that there has been change that has been made. You ought to be able to look back on that event and say, you know what, I didn't understand everything I understand now, but I can look and see that I am following the Lord Jesus Christ with my life. And no, I'm not perfect, and yeah, I still blow it in 10 trillion different ways, but the desire of my heart is to follow God. That desire doesn't make you saved. It just proves that you are. And I, I thought we were going to get a lot further than we did today. But for us to open up the next can of worms is going to put us here a whole lot longer than you, you want to be here today. And, uh, but I do want to say this. And, and, and let's just, uh, just chill right now. You don't need to put that away just yet. Let, let's just pull it in here. As a church, God's, God's blessed us. I mean, you know what? We did, when we started the discipleship thing, we never asked to, you know, that we might be able to, to go to other churches and sit down. And we, never, we never envisioned having pastor's conferences and teaching on discipleship. We never envisioned trips to the Philippines, Thailand, China, Russia. We, we, we never envisioned any, any of that kind of stuff. We weren't volunteering. We didn't know that anybody would ever find out what we believed. But, but folks, what God's been doing in this church is he's been trying to use this book to teach us about what genuine salvation is because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the name of Christ in these last days that really is not the gospel. People adding so much to just simple belief in Jesus Christ that they start adding human works to the thing and nullify salvation and yet so many people that are just simply telling people that if all you got to do is just say these words of a prayer and you will be saved, God is obligated to answer that prayer. And, and folks, both of them are a false gospel. In order for a person to come to Christ, they've got to understand who he is. And who he is, the name that you call on is the, the Lord, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And when the God of the universe comes into your life, buddy, you know it. And so does everybody else. Because it's written all over your life. Because he wrote something in your heart. And it changed your heart. And if you're here today, maybe you've embraced a religion because you thought God was wanting you to be religious. Can I just tell you, God's not interested in you being religious. He's interested in you turning from your own way and the way of Satan through the course of this world to his way. He's not asking you to clean up your life. He's just asking you to turn to him as he says, 
follow me. If you're trusting the fact that you believe in Christ, but you're going to do all of these other things to help him out, you know what? When you really start dissecting that thing, you haven't really believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You're believing what he did and what you're doing. Jesus' invitation was, follow me. And that's the invitation that he gives to you today. Will you be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? You're, you're on your own way. And now he's asking you to turn to follow him, to call upon his name and say, I know there's nothing that I can do. There's no way that I can make it on my own. And so I turn to the only one who can. Let's bow our heads together. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never genuinely come to, to faith in Christ based on the things that we've seen from the book of Romans and the gospel of John this, this morning, and we, we urge you today to, to come to Christ uh, apart from the barnacles of religion, apart from the barnacles of, of your good works, of your baptism, of the seven sacraments, of your church membership, whether it be in this church or any church. Will you come to Christ today? Simply saying, Lord, I know. I understand now. I can't come to the Father because of a religion. I can't come to the Father because of an experience. I can only do that through Christ. And so I call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today to, to be my only way of salvation. I turn to you. I turn from my life to your life. And if you'd like to call upon the name of the Lord today, oh, we'd love the privilege of talking with you. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're dismissed today. And it's our invitation. It's, it's our way of saying, listen, we're here for you. We, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to explain further from the Word of God. If you've got questions, w w would you come? We'll get, if you're a lady, we'll, we'll get a lady to, to talk with you. If you're a man, we'll, we'll get a man to talk with you. But today, if you've never come and embraced the true saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to come today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to nail down what we really believe about what this whole salvation thing is. Lord, there's not anything that is more basic more fundamental or, or more important than, than this issue. And so help us as a church to always communicate the true saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and help us not to be so anxious to get people over the goal line spiritually that we present something other than, than your word and making sure that people have understood who you are and what name it is that they're calling on. And pray that you would spare us as a church from ever moving into false doctrine. Teach us and enlighten us and keep us from, from ever getting out of bounds in, in, in that area doctrinally. And 
I pray for people that are here this morning that, that have never genuinely been saved, but have been trusting something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be the day that they would come to embrace you as their personal Savior. And Lord, as we continue to, to move through this passage and talking about following you, Lord, teach us what that means biblically so that we might be pleasing to you, so that we might be a light in the midst of this, this dark world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.